Well, we're continuing our study through the book of Revelation. We ended last week with the seal number six and what the whole world will experience during those judgments. And we talked about how no one is exempt from that. Now remember, the time now, the time before the rapture is the time of God's grace. The time after the rapture is going to be the time of God's judgment. Now, grace will be there, but it's not like it is today. People will be saved during the tribulation, but it's going to be very difficult and very costly to be saved during the tribulation. So now we come to chapter 7 in Revelation. Now, chapter 7 is kind of like a a parenthesis, like an interlude. It's it's a a gap between the sixth seal and the seventh seal. Um, I kind of liken it to... If you've ever been to a play and halfway through the play they have an intermission, this is what this seven, chapter seven is like an intermission. Every time you stretch your legs and go for snacks and you come back after chapter seven and Revelation, the play continues. Chapter seven is that intermission. Chapter eight, the play or the seals resume. Now during this time of the intermission where there's a gap between seal number six and seven, John sees two different visions. The first part of the first vision is in verse 1, Revelation 7, 1. It says, Then I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds from blowing upon the earth. Not a leaf rustled in the trees, and the sea became as smooth as glass. Now, angels have been associated in Scripture with forces of nature. Wind, we see there that says that they're holding back the wind from the four corners of the earth. It's been associated with fire, Revelation 14, 8 says, Then another angel who has power to destroy the world with fire. And the angels have control over water. Revelation 16, 5. I heard an angel who had authority over all water. So God has power and authority over all nature. And he's going to use nature to judge the world at that time. And right now in chapter 7, the angels are restraining the forces of judgment in order that the 144,000 come to know Christ and become sealed. And we're going to talk about that in a minute. Verse 2 goes on and says, I saw another angel coming from the east, carrying the seal of the living God. And he shouted out to those four angels who had been given power to injure land and sea. Wait, he says, don't hurt the land or the sea or the trees until we have placed the seal of God upon the forehead of his servants. Now, right now during the church age, Christians, we are marked with the seal of what? Holy Spirit. Ephesians 1.13 says, And you were also included in Christ when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. Having believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who, who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. Seal shows ownership. Right now, we are owned by God. We are sealed by God by the Holy Spirit. 1 Corinthians 6, 19 says, you don't belong to yourself. God bought you with a high price. So God, his sacrifice, we accepted his sacrifice, God bought us. He stamped on our forehead, he stamped on us the seal of the Holy Spirit. Now we belong to God. The Jews during this time are gonna receive God's seal, which is the exact opposite of the mark of the beast in this time. Revelation 13, 16 says, He required everyone, great and small, rich and poor, slave and free, to be given a mark on the right hand or on the forehead. Back at verse 1, it says, Then I saw the Lamb, or Revelation 14, 1, 
Then I saw the Lamb standing on Mount Zion, and with him were 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. So it's the exact opposite of what the mark of the beast is. Let me stop there for a minute. We talked about two things that are really, that we really need to understand. The first one is, if you've heard the gospel during this time, during the church age, and you reject it, and we did the scripture a couple weeks ago, the Bible says you're not gonna receive it during the tribulation. If you don't make the rapture and you've heard the gospel, you're not gonna get saved during the tribulation. The Bible says he sends a deceiving, a deception upon the people so they're, not gonna, they're gonna believe all the lies that are out there. So if you've heard the gospel, which if you're, in your, if you're in this church, you've heard the gospel, if you reject it, you're not gonna get saved during the tribulation. A lot of people think, I'll wait till the end, I'll wait till it comes and I'll get saved. No, it's not gonna work that way. And the second thing is if you've not heard the gospel, and you make it to the tribulation, in the, in the tribulation, if you take the mark of the beast, there is no turning back. How many understand that? Once you're in the tribulation, maybe you've never heard the gospel, and you wanna maybe take the mark because you wanna feed your kids, or you're afraid of something, so you take the mark and you think you'll reject it later. Doesn't work that way. Revelation 14.9 says, Anyone who worships the beast in his statue and who accepts the mark on his forehead or the hand must drink the wine of God's wrath. It is poured out undiluted unto God's cup of wrath. And they will be tormented with fire and burning sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and the lamb. The smoke of the torment rises forever and ever. And they will have no relief day and night for they have worshiped the beast and his statue and have accepted the mark of his name. So two things, if you heard the gospel, there's, not, there's no second chance after the rapture. So if you're hearing this, you need to accept it today. But for some, if you know relatives who've never been to church, never heard the gospel, and they accept the mark, then there's no way to come back. So now we come back to Revelation chapter seven, verse four, it says, and I heard how many were marked with the seal of God. There were 144,000 who were sealed from all the tribes of Israel. We see from the next verse that God picks 12,000 from each tribe and marks them with a visible seal. And that seal protects them from the wrath of God being poured out on the earth. It does not protect them from the wrath of man being poured out by men. You see the difference? God's gonna pour his wrath upon the earth and these guys will be exempt from that. But they will not be exempt from whatever hardship other people put upon them. They'll still be subject to torment and whatever. Now they're not gonna die right away, but they will be subject to torture. The same kind of thing happened, or the same kind of protection happened in the Old Testament. Ezekiel 9 verse three says, and the Lord called to the man dressed in linen who was carrying the writer's case. He said to him, walk through the streets of Jerusalem and put a mark on the foreheads of all those who weep and sigh because of the sins they see around them. So we're seeing these are, this is a remnant in Israel. When the rest of the country was going crazy, they had a remnant. And God says, these are the people that are, they're the remnant, they're crying because they see all the sin around them. And God says, put a seal on them. They're still gonna suffer what's happening here, but I want you to put a seal on them to protect them from the wrath I'm gonna pour upon them in the Old Testament. Verse five says, then I heard the Lord say to the other man, Follow him through the city and kill everyone whose forehead is not marked. Show no mercy, have no pity. Kill them all, old and young, 
girls and women and little children, but do not touch anyone with the mark. So in the Old Testament, when Israel was about to be punished by God for their idolatry, there was always a remnant. The Bible says there's always a small portion of people that believe. This is the remnant. They were sorrowful at what was happening around them, couldn't do anything about it other than their own life, and God says, you're going to be protected from the wrath I'm going to pour on the rest of the nation. So these Jews would not have, wouldn't have taken the mark in, the new, in Revelation so they can't buy food. So the 144,000, they're going to be protected from what God's going to do with the nature and stuff, but they're, not going to be, they're still going to be not being able to buy food. They're not going to have the mark so they can't buy food or do any business. So they're going to be struggling as well. They're free from God's judgment, and they're gonna be able to preach the gospel while they're there under great duress. Now, the vision that we're seeing here is taking place on earth. The next part that John sees is what's taking place in heaven. In verse nine, it says, after this I saw a vast crowd, too great to count from every nation, tribe, people, and language, standing in front of the throne and before the Lamb. They were clothed in white and held palm branches in their hands and they were shouting with a mighty shout, salvation comes from our God on the throne and from the lamb. First thing we see in heaven is it's populated by everybody. There's every nationality, every race, every creed. Everyone who accepts Christ for salvation throughout history, no matter where they're from, whatever country, nationality, they're all gonna be in heaven if they've accepted Christ. There is no delineation in heaven. But this is the group here that gets saved during the tribulation. In fact, John tells us as much in verse 14. He says, and he said to me, these are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. Now, most commentators believe that these are the ones that referred back when we talked last week about the, the martyrs praying under the altar in verse, chapter 6, verse 11. And it says, they were told to rest a little longer until the full number of their brothers and sisters, their fellow servants in Christ, have been martyred. So the ones that weren't, remember last week we talked about they were praying for deliverance and God's judgment upon the people that, were, that caused them to be martyred. And God says, it's coming. There's more to be martyred. They're coming. When it's done, then I'll pour judgment. This is what most commentators believe who is standing before the throne at this particular point. So they're, they're the ones who were saved through the tribulation. During the tribulation, Christians will be martyred. And since these were all martyrs, the group does not represent all Christians for all eternity because not all have been martyred, nor have they been in the tribulation. So the ones that are standing there now are specifically the ones who were killed during the tribulation. God is honoring his people with white robes and palm branches to symbolize victory and triumph. We sang that song this morning, victory. You know, you look around the world today, and it's like every time you, I, you know, I can't read, the, I can't watch the news because I just really get upset. And I, and I begin to look at things in the natural, how things are just going south real fast. But then I realize that's a, what God says is going to happen, so we shouldn't be surprised. I, uh, Tiff's newsletter, I like the headline on it, if I can quote it right, it says something in effect. Um, we shouldn't be worried about what's prophesied because it's fulfilling it perfectly, according to what God's word says. Everything that's happening is exactly what's supposed to happen. So even though it seems like we're losing, 
The Bible says it's going to get worse before it gets better. So we already have the victory. No matter what happens on this planet, if we keep following Christ, we're going to wind up in heaven, regardless of what happens here. Hallelujah. Revelation 3.5 says, All who are victorious are clothed in white. Clothing is a symbol of those who are victorious through this life. And I look at some of you around us who have suffered a lot this past year or so. A lot of tragedy. That's where God has to minister to you. But in the end, we're all going to be together if we keep trusting Christ. If we've lost loved ones, actually, I don't like that word lost because we, don't, we know where they are. They're not lost. They're not lost to us. We know where they are. And don't you want to see them again? That's the victory. That's the victory. And those of you who are older, like me, you, you get it. This life, you got more days behind you than ahead of you. And so you're anxious to see those who have gone on before you. And you younger folks, it's going to be the same way. When you get older, it's coming. I forget how it goes. As I am, you once were, or I once was, and as I am now, you will be. So one of these days, you'll be looking back at more days behind you than ahead of you. But ultimately, that's what we want. We know where they are, and we want to be with them, and that's why we're so, so much praying for those to be saved, because we want the people we love and care about to be with us, not forgotten. When Jesus had his triumphal entry in Matthew 21, 8, it says, most of the crowd spread their coats on the roads ahead of Jesus and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. The Jews used palm branches at the Feast of Tabernacles as a time of national rejoicing. Leviticus 23, says, now on the first day of the festival of shelters, let's skip to verse 40, on the first day, gather fruit from citrus trees and collect palm fronds. Now, I don't know what that exactly is, but they were used in celebrating in Israel. And so when, they're, when Christ gives these victors a white robe, they've been victorious over life, and palm branches to celebrate where they are. So now they're in heaven, everyone's rejoicing and full of joy, and what was the first thing they do? Verse 11. It says, and all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living beings. And they fell face down before the throne and worshiped God. You know, we have roughly 20, 25 minutes of worship every Sunday. There's going to be unending worship in heaven. Verse 12 says, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and strength belong to our God forever and ever. Amen. Now, I mentioned before that this is a time of God's judgment, but God will still show mercy to those who call on his name during the tribulation. When Judah was taken into captivity by Babylon because of their sin, Habakkuk, the prophet, still knew God's mercy. Habakkuk 3.2 says, I heard... I've heard all about you, Lord, and I am filled with awe by the amazing things you have done. In this time of our deep need, again, they're getting dragged away to Babylon to be punished, begin again to help us as you did in years gone by. Show us your power to save us, and in your anger, 
Remember your mercy. God's anger is going to be poured out on the earth in tribulation. But he's also going to remember his mercy to those who call upon his name. People will be saved during the tribulation, but it's going to be at a great cost to them because they will be martyred. Verse 13, then one of the 24 elders asked me, who are these clothes that are in white? Where do they come from? Now, two schools of thought on who the elders are. Some think they're men, some think they're angels. It doesn't say. And if it doesn't say, we don't, we're not gonna speculate. And if God wanted us to know who it was, I think he would have spelled it out plainly to us. So whoever it was, whoever these guys were, it sounds like they thought John should have known the answer to that question. But not knowing seems to indicate, again, that these are not Old Testament saints that are in front of him or the other apostles that John knew. If John didn't know who they were, I think he would have recognized his contemporaries. Probably would have recognized Moses because, you know, but he didn't know any of them. Remember, we, in he- we did a series on heaven a while ago we're going to remember people in heaven. We're going to recognize people in heaven. They will have some characteristics about them that we will know. We will remember them. So John didn't know who they were. So again, we think they're tribulation saints, people that died during the tribulation. Verse 14 says, after the angel asked him, says, and I said to him, sir, you're the one who knows who they are. So he's asking this elder to tell them who they were. He wants to know who they are. And the elder answered him in verse 14 says, and he said to me, these are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. Again, these are the ones who were martyred because of their faith during the tribulation. These are not saints who were alive and were martyred, but those who are going to be martyred. These are, this is the vision that John's seeing. This hasn't happened yet. He's seeing the people that are going to be martyred during the tribulation, all of them. He's seeing into the future. It hasn't happened And to be fair, there's different views of this. Some believe it's every believer. Some believe, like we said, it's only those who were saved during the tribulation. I think it's plain that it's about the people who were saved during the tribulation, but people differ on that. I want to be upfront with you on that. But again, we're not going to dispute the minutia of things like that. We want to look at the overall picture of what God's doing on the earth. And the important thing to know here is that the only people standing before God are the ones who have been saved, whether it's the tribulation saints or whether it's everybody. The only way you're standing before God in his mercy is by accepting Christ. Verse 14 says, they washed their robes in the blood of the lamb and made them white. They're there because they were saved. Now, if we go over the first first interpretation that these are people who are alive after the rapture, who've never heard the gospel, but they hear it now, and they're saved. Their sins are forgiven. In other words, whatever they've done up to this point, the Bible says their sins are forgiven. They washed their robes. They made them white before God. But again, whatever interpretation, it's only for believers. There's a a common fallacy that uh, the fatherhood of God and the brotherhood of man, how many have heard that phrase before? where everyone's a child of God and everyone's gonna make it to heaven. The Bible does not teach that. The Bible says as many as call upon the name of Jesus will be saved. The Bible says whoever calls upon his name, those he gives the authority to call him father. 
In other words, if you're not saved, you have no authority to call God your father. Isaiah 1.18 says, Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. You know, I've heard sermons, a lot of sermons on you're, no one's too bad to be saved. Your sins aren't too great to be saved. How many have heard sermons like that? No matter what you've done, God can forgive it. You murdered someone, God can forgive it. And even things that may, we may not like, God says you're forgiven. I, I heard an interview the other day, it was an old interview that James Dobson did with uh, Ten Bundy. You remember, you know, Ted Bundy, right? And according to Dobson, Ted Bundy got saved before he was executed. So that means Ted Bundy's in heaven. Now, we, we kind of cringe at that. But if Ted Bundy can't be in heaven, then neither can any of us. Because all of our sins, all of our sins keep us from God's presence. The Bible says all have sinned. All fall short of God's glory. And we may not think that that person deserves it, but we're not God. Good thing. But on the other hand, you may think, I'm too bad to be saved. I think just as equal to that is, I'm good enough that I don't need to be saved. That was me. I was, I was a good guy. I didn't kill anybody, I didn't murder anybody, I didn't steal, I didn't, so I'm good. The Bible says no. No matter how good you are, unless you confess your sins to Christ and ask for forgiveness, you ain't making it either. So my sins were as scarlet as Ted Bundy's sins. And God says, I'm forgiven. And God says, Ted Bundy's forgiven, if he was. And God says, you're forgiven, no matter what you've done, if you trusted him for that. Amen. You know, the Bible says no one comes to God unless God, the Father draws them. Aren't you glad God drew you? Man, where would you be if God didn't want that relationship first? God draws it. You wake up at night thinking about things of God. You come to church and something that said you're thinking about God. That's basically God making you think about him because God wants a relationship. So what's it gonna be like for believers when we get there? Verse 15. That is why we are standing in front of the throne of God, serving him day and night in his temple. Now how many have thought heaven's gonna be boring? As all we're gonna do is stand and worship all the time? Do we get to sit down? Do we have to do anything? Remember, all of our fleshly attitudes will be gone in heaven. You're not gonna be tired. You're not gonna to wanna to sit down. You're not gonna be bored because that's a fleshly attitude. All the things that we think in our, in our mind right now, all the desires we have, man, if I don't get out of here by 12, that's gonna burn. Or if I don't get out of here by 12, the restaurants are going to be full. I'll never get a seat. All the things that we think about now that keep us from God, all that will be gone. So we're not going to have an attitude of, 
Is it almost over yet? <laughs> Samuel cracks me up. Little Samuel's five, five? He was in service a couple weeks ago. And I think it was when worship was over and the kids were leaving, he says, finally, it's over. <laughs> and I'm thinking, how many adults are thinking the same thing? <laughs> All the human traits that we have will be gone. So we're not going to be bored. We're not going to be tired of standing. We're going to be enjoying being in God's presence. Right now, we have a buffer between us and God, right? Jesus is the buffer, right? Because of our sinful nature, we can't approach God face to face. We have an intermediary. What's Timothy say? For there's one God and one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. So we have one person that's a buffer between us and God. He mediates for us. The Bible says he ever makes to, he never lives to make intercession for us. So when we're down here doing our thing, the Bible says Jesus is praying for you. He's interceding for you. He knows what's going to happen. He knows what's happening, so he's interceding for you. So we can't come to God face to face. We have to pray through Christ. But when we're in heaven, there's no need for anything to come between us and being in God's presence. You ever, I mean, the Bible says we can't make any graven image, right? Because we have no idea what God looks like. In fact, the Old Testament, every time someone thought they saw God, they thought they were going to die because God was going to burn them up. So we have no idea what God looks like. And we may not even look, know what God looks like in heaven, but we're going to be in front of him in heaven. And we get to see him, the Bible says, see him as he is. Verse 15 and he who sits on the throne will live among them and shelter them. And shelter here literally means to spread his tent over them. Exodus 40, 34 says, Then the cloud covered the tabernacle, and the glorious presence of the Lord filled it. God spreads his glory over his people for their protection. Similar to what Jesus said in Matthew 23. It says, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones God's messengers. How often I would have gathered, wanted to gather your children together as a hen protects her chicks under her wings, but you wouldn't let me. That's what God wants to do. That's what God wants to do. You saw our grandson here this morning. He's at the age where you know, he just he clings to you. He won't let go of you. He, I mean, his sister, who's two, is fine. She's gone. But he's, you know, he's real... He just hangs on to you. And the more you move away, the closer he clings to you. And he kind of wants, and when we were worshiping here, he, he reached up and grabbed, grabbed Anna's hand because he wants, like, her protection. He wants to be protected by her. And which, by the way, if it's between the two of us, it's always her. <laughs> when we go home, is Mima here? Yeah, Mima's here. Good. When we go out together, and I take them out of their car seats, and they both want Mima to take them out of their car seat. Not me, Mima. Now, if she's not there, I'm good enough, but... Yeah, but yeah, but he wanted her protection. God wants to cover us with his protection. We all have that image of little children we want to protect and just cover them. And because of God's glorious protection, verse 16 says, they will never again be hungry or thirsty. 
and they will be fully protected from the scorching noontime heat. Again, contrasting it to what is happening on the earth at this particular time. During the tribulation, there's going to be famine and hunger, parched lands, no water, scorching heat. Revelation 6, 8, we talked about it last week. It says, they were given authority over one-fourth of the earth to kill with the sword and famine and disease and wild animals. And jump to Revelation 16, 8, it says, then the fourth angel poured out his bowl on the sun, causing it to scorch everyone with, with its fire. Everyone was burned by this blast of heat, and they cursed the name of God who sent all of these plagues. They did not repent and give him glory. Now, I've seen some where this is a kind of a reference to Isaiah's prophecy of Israel's restoration in the end. Isaiah 40, 49, verse 8, it says, this is what the Lord says. At just the right time, I will respond to you. On the day of salvation, I will help you. I will give you as a token and a pledge to Israel. This will prove that I will reestablish the land of Israel and reassign it to its own people again. Through you, I am saying to the prisoners of darkness, come out, I am giving you freedom. They will be my sheep, grazing in green pastures and on hills that were previously bare. Neither will they hunger or thirst. The searing sun and scorching desert winds will not reach them anymore. Again, at the end times, the new heavens and the new earth. Back to Revelation 7, verse 17 says, For the Lamb who stands in front of the throne will be their shepherd. He will lead them to the springs of life-giving water. Get a kind of a picture of Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd. I have everything I need. He lets me rest in green meadows. He leads me beside peaceful streams. He renews my strength. He guides me along right paths, bringing honor to his name. You know, on earth, everything seems to be driven around us. Kind of push you here, push you there. You're pushed by the things in the earth, in the world. In heaven, we're going to be led, not pushed. We're going to be led by a loving shepherd, not pushed as by the prince of the power of the air. Think of a small child being led by his father. When you're leading them, in the process of leading, you're also protecting them. When your kids come to a street, you grab their hand. You're leading them, but you're also protecting them from running out into the street. You're protecting them from whatever happens around them. You're there to guard them, pull them in. You're protecting them by leading them. The Lord, will, we don't need protection, but he is a loving shepherd leading you through heaven. When you lead someone, that usually means they're be, behind you. That means you're the shield. If they're behind you and you're leading them, anything that's going to come at them is going to hit you first. You're their protection. When God leads us, he's our protection. Things come at him first before they come to us. Verse 17 says, and God will wipe away all their tears. On earth, we all suffer tribulation, we all have hardships, and those who are martyred suffered more. But in the end, all the suffering will be wiped away. Think if when your child gets hurt, cries, kind of wipe that tear away, right? Moms, you take that tear and you wipe it away. God's going to wipe the tear. Whatever you're crying about today, God's going to wipe that tear away. And there's things that we go through in our life that 
they don't go away. The thought's always there, the memory's always there. And until we go to heaven, it's always gonna be there. God says, I'll, I mean, I'll wipe that away. You're not gonna sorrow anymore. Why? Because all the suffering that we've endured will be wiped away. Along with the tear that God wipes away, God will also wipe away any memories of why the tear is there. Think about the pain that you're going through now. Maybe it's with people. Maybe it's with finances. Maybe it's with health, whatever it might be. All the things that cause you hardship and pain here, you're not going to have any memory of that in heaven. That's good, and it's bad. Now, why is it bad? Because if you have loved ones who don't get saved, you're not going to remember them in heaven. Why would you... Why would you remember someone who did not get saved suffering in hell? How would that allow you to have peace in heaven? God's going to take every memory away that will cause you pain. And you don't want to forget your loved ones. But in order to have a joyous heaven, you're not going to remember them. But you will remember those who are in heaven. That's why it's so vital that we keep praying for those that we know. That's been up for a year, over a year. We're praying for people who don't know Christ because it's gonna be soon. Either Christ returns soon or we're gonna be dead with no one to share that with them. We need to be about God's business. Revelation 21 verse three says, and I heard a loud voice from the throne calling, now the dwelling of God is with men and he will live with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. The older we get, the more we see the reality of death. And what I mean by this is, as we get older, more and more of our contemporaries die. People we know, people we may not know, but we grew up with. I mean, Bob Saget just died. Who'd have thought Bob Saget would have died? I had two friends of mine back home that were younger than me, passed away. I look back at some of the mentors I had in my old church, some of the guys that were there, and they weren't a whole lot older than I am, but there's about five or six of them that are already with the Lord now. I'm on a Facebook group with the, my graduating high school class way back in the dark ages. We have our own little web page, you know, class of 76, and on that web page is a in memoriam tab. Every once in a while, I'll look at that. These are all my classmates. I had a big class, so, and there's a, a lot of kids on that page. And it's not just recently. There, was, there were kids that died a year after graduating high school. Car accident, whatever. And I look at that, and I praise God that I'm where I'm at right now. But I realize that 
One day my face is going to be on that page. And one day our, every face is going to be on a page like that. I remember what Lois used to say, Lois Perry. I asked her how she's doing. She says, any day I don't see my name in the obituaries is a good day. <laughs> and she's with Jesus. Death is inevitable for everyone. We have a choice now of how we're going to face it. And what choice we make now dictates what's going to happen to us after that day comes. It will determine now if we get to wipe away every tear or if we're going to be crying forever. I said last week and a lot of times before that, God wants everyone to have their tears wiped away. He never intended for us to not be there. The Bible says it was created for the devil and his angels, not for us. He wants us to escape the wrath. But again, he leaves the choice up to you and to me. And God allows you to keep that choice. If you choose to live without God now, he's going to let you choose to live without God then. He's, he's a gentleman. He's not going to force your hand. He's not going to make you do anything. But he gives you ample opportunity to make the right choice. As long as you're here and breathing, you have the chance to make the choice. And that means not just saying a prayer on Sunday morning and walking out and living like you want to live. It means saying the prayer, becoming a new creature in Christ, as the Bible says, and letting God transform you into who you want you to be. I'm trying to tell the teens that this morning that, you know, they're young, so they haven't got a lot of stuff behind them yet, which is good because you don't want them to have a lot of baggage behind them. You want them to get saved now. So they don't do it when they're 30 with 30 years of junk behind them. But we tell them that God can transform who they are now. They can have different thoughts and attitudes and actions now if they make the choice now. And of course, oh yeah, yeah, we did, we did that, we did that. Okay. And we're gonna keep beating it into your head until, until we can't anymore. But the choice is up to you and to me. We want to live for that day, not necessarily for today. I'll close with this. You ever think about the rewards in heaven? I think about my life compared to that thing broken in the, in the sound booth. I think about my life and, and my so-called tribulations. And then I think of people who've really had hardship and tribulation. I'm thinking, I'm going to be in the back of the bus when those rewards come around. Because in most parts of the world, it really costs you to be a believer. It costs you your life, even now, today. It costs you your life. It costs you your, your means of support. It costs you everything. Right now, we have it really good. It may not last, but right now, we have it really good. And that should make us want to live for Christ all the more now, while it's good. And not wait until God has to get our attention to bring us back. He had to do that with Israel how many times? I read through the book of Judges, and I, I, you never read through a book of the Bible and think, it's going to be different this time I read it. You know, okay, Samson, 
He's not going to blow it this time. He's, he's going to wake up. He's not going to blow it. But how many, every, every other chapter, they're making the same mistake. Why? Because things were going good. And God had to make things go bad for them to get their attention. Well, we want to praise God while things are good and honor God while things are going great. So that when things do get difficult, we're already in a great position. We're already worshiping God and the Holy Spirit's infilling us and it's not going to hit us as hard as it hit those who aren't living for God. We're not going to have to cram for our final when hardship comes. We'll have studied all year long and we're ready for that test. So what's your choice? Would you stand as we close? Can you bow your heads for a moment? You know, most of the folks here, you've been here for many years. And we have some new guests this morning. We have some folks who haven't been here with us for a while. But no matter what the case is, you can be in church all your life and never really know Jesus. I can say that because that was me. I spent three years, three services a week in an Assembly of God church and I wasn't saved, but everybody thought I was because I was a nice guy. God had to get my attention. So just being in church doesn't make you a Christian. Just coming to a, a service doesn't guarantee you a place in heaven. What guarantees you peace and joy and comfort now as well as the promise of eternity is faith in Christ. The Bible says, and I've said it before, everyone sins. Every one of us has sinned great sins. And the Bible says, Without sin, with sin, we can't be in God's presence. The wages of our sin, what we are deserving of, is God's punishment. But God says, I'll send Jesus to take that punishment for you, and all you have to do is believe it. Not just in your head, but you have to believe it in your heart so it allows the Holy Spirit to transform you. The Bible says the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ. So if you're here this morning and you've never really, you've been in church maybe all your life, maybe this is your first time, but you've never really come to Christ admitting that you're a sinner, knowing that you need Christ to forgive you of your sin, to make you right with God, and once you have that right, then you can live the rest of your life knowing that you are right with God. The Bible says these things are written that you may know you have eternal life. I wake up every day excited knowing that I have a relationship with God the Father and then whenever my time happens to come, man, I'm gonna be with Jesus. That's what gets me going every day. That's what should get everybody going every day. But if you don't know that, you don't have that peace and the Bible says then maybe you don't have that relationship because these things are written that you may know, not think, not guess, not hope so, that you may know you have eternal life. And if you're not sure, you have doubt, I've never done it, 
Whatever that doubt may be, the Bible says God can take all that doubt away and replace it with the knowledge, the assurance that you have a right relationship with the creator of the universe. Now, if that's you and you want to have that assurance, I want to pray with you. Would you raise your hand this morning real high? All right, I'm going to assume that we are all committed followers of Christ. So let's pray. Father, we thank you. We thank you, Jesus. That first we have a relationship with you. That you drew us. That you put up with us until we came to know you. Your word tells us that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. While we hated you, you died for us. If you never do anything else more for us, Lord, that was sufficient. And we thank you so much for that. But your word also tells us that you've given us great and precious promises that are yea and amen. And we cling to those every day. As we pray this morning, Lord, we cast all these burdens and cares upon you. Things that weigh us down during the week. Things that tend to take away our joy. Things that are on our mind that we think we can't handle. We gave them to you this morning, Lord, every one of them. And we know that you're going to work those out for your glory. I thank you for what you've done so far in each of the folks in this church. The answered prayer, the blessings, the encouragement that you have, you have given them. Not me, not other people, but you have given them. And because we know that you are doing it, that makes us want to expect more. Not because we're worthy, but because we want to see the glory of God in this church. So when people leave, they know they've been in your presence, Lord. And when people hear on the outside that God is doing something in this church, they want to know what it is. And Father, we draw them in and let the Spirit of God do a work in their life and transform them as well. We continue to lift up those in our prayer list, Father, that, that don't know you, that Jesus, you get into their life. Remove the blinders from their eyes. Let them see the truth. Lord, it's like a light bulb going off in your head when you accept it. Jesus, open their eyes to the truth. Do what you need to do to get their attention. Your word says the goodness of God leads people to repentance. Lord, if it's goodness, then you just pour your goodness upon them. Let them see how good you've been to them. If it's difficulty, Lord, if you need to get someone's attention through hardship, as much as we don't like that, we pray that because we want them to be saved more than we want them to have an easy time because ultimately, Lord, that time will pass but salvation will be for eternity. So, Father, we commit all those folks we're praying for to you that you draw them to Christ, that you do a work in their life. You save them. We can't save anybody. Help us to be about your business. Help us to share the gospel but you have to do the saving. So Lord, I commit each person here to you to that end, that we leave here energized by what God you did today and energized by what you're going to do this week through each one of us, that you're going to put us in positions and places that you need us to be, and that when we're there, Lord, we will be, as your word tells us, your ambassadors to the people we are around, and we can tell them about the greatness of our Lord. So, Father, I commit this church to you in its entirety in Jesus' name.
And everyone said, amen. Amen. God bless you. Have a great week. See you Wednesday. We're continuing to talk about walking on water. If you guys want to walk on water, that's, that's the night to do it.